The last few weeks, we've been in the, the book of Genesis, looking at the life of Joseph. And this morning, we're gonna continue in that path. It has been said before that large doors swing on small hinges. The course of history is often determined by the smallest particulars. One of my favorite books in the Bible is the story of Esther. Esther is the only book of the Bible that never explicitly mentions God. Yet as Matthew Henry said, though the name of God be not in it, the finger of God is directing many minute events for the bringing about of the people's deliverance. And this story of Esther that if you were to read is filled with these crucial happenings that, that might have looked like chance to anyone observing these events at the time. Perhaps they looked to, that way to you, just, just happenstance. Things just seem to happen. Well, what stuff? Well, Esther just happens to be Jewish. She just happens to be beautiful. Mordecai just happens to overhear a plot against the king's life. A report of this just happens to be written in the king's chronicles. Haman just happens to notice that Mordecai does not kneel before him, and he just happens to find out that Mordecai is a Jew. When Haman plots his revenge, the, the, the dice just happen to indicate that the date for exacting revenge is put off for almost a year. And Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Esther happens to get the king's approval to speak, but then she happens to put off a request another day. Her deferral just happens to send Haman out by Mordecai one more time, which just happens to cause him to recount it to his friends. They, in turn, just happen to encourage him to build a scaffold immediately. So Haman just happens to be excited to approach the king early the next morning. But it so just happens that the previous night, the, the mighty king could not command a moment's sleep. He couldn't sleep. And he just happens to have a book brought to him that recounted all of Mordecai's deeds. Then he just happens to ask Mordecai if he'd been rewarded, to which the attendants just happened to know the answer. He hadn't, which is just strange in itself. Haman happens to approach the king just when the king is wondering how Mordecai should be honored. And later on, the king happens to return to the queen just when Haman happens to be pleading with Esther in a way that can be misconstrued. And the gallows that Haman built for Mordecai just happened to be ready when the king wants to hang Haman. We can keep on going through this story. Some may say it was just luck. Not for Haman, for others, or happenstance. It just happened this way. But as you see, as you study the word, it's called providence. It's littered throughout the Bible if your eyes are open. The doctrine of the providence of God, it comes from the word provide, which has two parts, pro, Latin, which means forward or on behalf of, and, and vide, Latin, to see. So you might think that provide would mean to see forward or to foresee, but it doesn't. It means to supply what is needed, to give sustenance and support. And so the noun providence has, has come to mean the act of providing for or sustaining and governing the universe of God, by God. In the words of the Westminster Confession, God in his providence upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things to bring about a sovereignly predetermined plan. And we can see providence all throughout the scriptures if we're looking for it. How do you view life right now, friends? Do you view it 
luck, chance, or the sovereign providence of a loving God? As we consider the life of Joseph, do we see providence or luck? Is it just happenstance or, or part of a careful, compassionate plan for his children? If you haven't already, turn to Genesis 41, and I'm gonna pray, and then we'll dive into this story this morning. Genesis chapter 41, follow with me as I pray. God, we thank you that we can gather this, together this morning to to sit under the preaching of your word and we ask God that you would make it effective in the hearts of your people, that they would hear from you, that they would understand what your word says and they would be able to apply it to their lives and, and come away different and changed this morning because of the result of meeting with you. And we'll be sure God to give you all the honor and glory for we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna talk about providence and, and the first point this morning is God's providence in Pharaoh. God's providence in Pharaoh. When Joseph was a late teenager, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, he had two dreams of someday being a ruler. And all his brothers, even his father, would bow down to him. And these dreams brought the end of his family relationships because the brothers couldn't bear the thought of, of, of sending their lives to anyone, let alone their little brother. Instead of killing Joseph, though, their first plan, they, they instead decide to sell him to the Midianite traders on their way to Egypt. And it seems for, for Joseph, life couldn't get any lower. But then he turns a corner and is purchased by Potiphar and is quickly placed in charge of all, second in command. But then Potiphar's wife also accuses him and he's thrown into the pit, even lower than he was before. But then one day the door opens to the prison and two men enter, two important men from Pharaoh's leadership team. And these two men have had dreams and wake up disturbed and Joseph notices and he steps in to help and he, to give a solution to their dream. And the baker's dream, if you remember from last week, doesn't end well with his death three days later. But the cupbearer's is different. He'll be restored to his position three days later. And as he's making his way out of prison, Joseph pleads for him to remember him before Pharaoh. And as we read last week, it doesn't happen. The cupbearer is restored and Joseph is forgotten. And so we come to chapter 41 and there are more dreams. Look at verse one. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was, no, there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. See, while Joseph's on the sidelines, not too far away from the palace, Pharaoh is thrown into dismay because of dreams. Do you ever remember your dreams? I seldom remember anything that I dream, but my wife remembers hers, and they're just odd. <laughs> my wife's not odd, but her dreams are. It's sad that our dreams uh, reflect our subconscious fears and desires, I don't know. Pharaoh's dreams were not that type. They're particular and they're disturbing. 
Why were they bothering him so much? It's, it's where he's standing when these dreams happen. He's standing by the Nile. Walter Brueggemann explains the Nile River is not only a geographical reference, it's also expression of the imperial power of fertility. It is administration of the Nile which permits the king to generate and guarantee life. The failure of the Nile and its life system means that the empire does not have itself the power of life. So for them, the, the, the Nile was no common river. It was instead a, it was a god that they worshiped. The Egyptians' number one god, in fact. And they regarded this, this Nile, Egypt regarded as a gift, looking to it for life. Their, their nation was dependent on the Nile, and they're thinking it was the Nile that provided everything for them, for their people. So these dreams were significant for Pharaoh because it challenged all that they believed was significant and important. And every year, whether it rained or not, the Nile would overflow its banks, depositing rich silt, watering the crops, and providing good grazing. So it was no surprise that the first seven cows were, were fat, but the next seven were slender, evil-looking beasts, and they promptly ate the fat ones without gaining any weight themselves. And there's no doubt that, that he woke up with a cold sweat. What's going on? Somehow, some way, he falls back asleep. And the second dream illustrates the first. Seven fat ears of grain growing on a single stalk that looks right to them. Okay, this is, this is about right. But then seven thin ears, wilted by the dry and scorching wind, come behind and eat up the seven plump ears of grain. And he awakens to find himself in the same situation that the cupbearer was in two years ago. Disturbed, distressed, bothered. But Pharaoh... The, the, the king of all has this group of magicians and he, he calls them to come in and to translate this. He, the, the wise men to come in and serve him, to, to give him the answers. It's significant to recognize he's helpless at this point. He has no idea what to do and so he calls them for help, but they're no help. They, they represent the best that this pagan religion can do. They stand for the wisdom of this world and they are worthless when it matters. And all this heightens the tension now in the story and leaves room open for God to get the glory. See, Pharaoh's helpless with these dreams and it's a third pair of dreams that we see in the story and, and God's behind them all. In the verse nine here, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed in the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. See, the, the cupbearer remembers Joseph now. Something jogs his memory and he speaks up. He, he informs Pharaoh of all that happened. This guy here, this young Hebrew, he's the real deal. He, he's got the inside track. So what happens? Verse 14 Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Pharaoh's reaction to the cupbearer's confession produces a flurry of activity. Pharaoh uses then all sorts of flattery for Joseph, which I find humorous. Verse 15, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret. I have heard said of you that you hear a dream you can interpret. And he recognizes the leader of this mighty nation now trying to sweet talk this kid to help him because he is distressed. He has no one else to help him. 
he needs an answer. This is very bothersome to him. And he, and he just happens to have a Hebrew close by that interprets dreams. But Joseph isn't fooled by this praise. He knows where the answers come. In verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He wants Pharaoh to know that the answers come from the God of the universe, not himself. So Pharaoh retells the dream to him in verses 17 through 24, and we won't read that again. But then in verse 25, Joseph responds. He says, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dream of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he, will, what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that come up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. There's coming a great famine. These two dreams are one. The, the two symbols are conveying the same story. And then he's clear to Pharaoh in verse 28. God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. See, there's a clear contrast be, between the, the helplessness of the most powerful man on earth and the only one true God. Who is going to have his way in Egypt? Who is really in control? This is a testimony of our sovereign Lord. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. This weekend, we planted some grass in my backyard, and I, you know what I do? I take my hose out there, and I place it wherever I want. I have power over the water and my little yard. This is the picture that Proverbs is saying to us. Like I have power and control over my hose, God has power and control over all kings. Their, their heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. So he talks about kings and rulers and presidents and emperors in our world. They bend to God's will. All of them. All of their decisions. All of their plans. All of their hopes. All of it depends upon God. Pharaoh is unsettled by these dreams, and he should be. He cannot control the water. He cannot control nature. But there is one that can. And this, this episode here is a reminder for us, church, to remember that leaders and politicians and Supreme Court and even dictators in our world are not the ones who make history. We need to get that through our heads and remind ourselves. They're not the ones who make history. History, all of it, is in God's hands. God raises up leaders, even mayors and senators from simple and meager beginnings, and he places them in their leadership positions. God does that, and it's not an accident. And God will direct them as he pleases, and he can remove them whenever he desires. God is in control, not man. And Joseph knows this and steps out to be very strong towards Pharaoh of God's plan for Egypt. And he says in verse 32, and the the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. He's firm. God will do what he has planned. And seven years of famine was almost unheard of in Egypt because of the Nile. And this plan is set by our sovereign God, but his providence for Pharaoh comes next. Look at verse 33. Now, therefore... Let Pharaoh, this is Joseph talking, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. 
Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers of the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it, that food shall be a, a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that, that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. See, Joseph completes the interpretation by sharing God's solution to the famine. He takes a big risk here by sharing this information because it could have been misconstrued. He wasn't asked for the answer for the problem. He's asked to share what the problem was. God provided that Pharaoh not only learn what the dream meant, but that how he can solve the problem. Do you see the hand of God here working and providing for Pharaoh? Joseph calls him to action, to select a man you trust and, and save one-fifth of the food for the first seven years. Then when the famine comes for the next seven years, the government would have enough resources to meet the needs of the people for those years. And you have to realize this must have been a nightmare for people to believe. It must have been an unpopular suggestion. Really, after all these years, after we're, we're just sailing along just fine, and now you're telling us we're going to have a famine? I'm sure people doubted Joseph. Now we need to set aside one-fifth. But what's Pharaoh's response? Verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. See, Joseph's faith in God was contagious. It was so startling that he easily and quickly determines that this Hebrew man would be the one that he trusts. He was in prison that morning. And Joseph, I'm sure, would have been thrilled just to be released from prison. But now this, I'm sure he's astounded of what's happening in his life. Pharaoh is essentially making him the prime minister of Egypt, a Hebrew from a nobody family. And he says in verse 41, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. God has provided for Pharaoh more than enough food too. We can jump down to verse 49, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. They stopped counting because God provided. And God would, would give to this man and to this people all the food that they would need, and God still uses people for his own glory. Are you shocked by this? Are we filled with such little faith that you rarely believe that God can use your words to make a difference and direct people to consider God? You know, it's not always. We don't always have a, an opportunity to explicitly walk through every point of the gospel with people. Sometimes we're, we're dealt with just three minutes with someone. And, and I mean, the common words that we have with our coworkers and our neighbors and our kids and family, do you believe that God can use you for his own glory with your conversations? Or are you fearful to share about your relationship with God because of the backlash that might have come? Pharaoh could have said, I don't want to hear about your God and thrown him back into prison. Have we forgotten that it's not in our words 
but the power of God that people are swayed and confronted with the truth of him. It's not in how eloquent we are, how smart we think we are. See, Pharaoh wasn't swayed because of the force and power of Joseph's words or some intellectual argument or even an impassioned speech. Pharaoh listened to Joseph's words simply because God was at work in Pharaoh's heart, confirming the truth of his words and the plan. And so for Pharaoh, Joseph's proposition made complete sense. It was the work of God in the heart of Pharaoh. So what should be our most dedicated action in this world when we share the truth with others who desperately need to hear it? It's that we pray. We pray and we ask God to work. We pray and ask God to give faith to those that need to hear and understand the gospel, that God would save them. We pray because we believe that nothing will happen unless God does the work first. And God might be working in the lives of people surrounding you right now, preparing them to hear your words so they might actually receive the truth with, with unexpected gladness and joy. So friends, we need to pray. Well, we've looked at the providence seen through the story of Pharaoh and, and the people of Egypt, but what about Joseph? Second, God's providence and Joseph. You know, we said this, but coming back to the beginning of the chapter, it's just another day in prison for Joseph. But what a difference a day can make in our lives. One day it seems like there's no end in sight, and the next you're being beckoned to change your clothes quickly, shave, and make your way before the king. And what a whirlwind of a day that must have been for Joseph. And God was providing in so many ways along this path. What prompted the removal, though? It was a dream that Pharaoh had had that no one was able to give clarity a dream that after 13 years, Joseph stuck in prison, seemingly thinking there's no end in sight, now called out to come before the greatest ruler in the country. And how does it happen? Verse nine, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. He remembers his sin is what he's saying. He remembers his guilt. He is literally saying, I need to confess my sins today. He wronged both Joseph and Pharaoh by not sharing what happened two years ago in prison. How did he remember this? It's been two years and now he remembers. I don't know. Perhaps when he sees the distress of the king, it brings up the memory, or perhaps it was, it was God who brought this to his mind, but there's humility of this cupbearer to come forward now. He could have been scared of what might have happened to him for not sharing. But he steps out and he shares, and Joseph is quickly brought before Pharaoh, all cleaned up, shaved, ready to answer the questions. And God is providing in ways that I'm sure Joseph wasn't expecting when he woke up that morning. In verse 15, we read it earlier, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And what a temptation this would have been for Joseph. Right? What flattery, what praise is now given to him? No one can help me, boy, and I've heard stories about you and how great you are, and I want you to help me. I mean, it must have been a temptation for Joseph. He had the opportunity right then to take all of the credit himself. Why, yes, it was me. I did help the cupbearer. I did give those interpretations. You've come to the right guy, Pharaoh. That could have been what he had said. 
the pressure must have been huge standing before the guy who can set you free. And he's praising you. Does Joseph fear man or fear God? What does he say in verse 16? Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He's saying, no king, I can't do this, but God can. He will not take any credit for himself. He's not a professional dream teller. And it would would have been so easy for him to take credit though, to, to boast in himself. He's in the presence of the greatest man on earth, all dressed up, looking and feeling important. This could have been the opportunity. Instead, he boasts about God. He wants God to get all the glory. Why do we feel that we have to boast in ourselves? What does it reveal about our hearts? What do we place our confidence in? Does our boasting possibly show where we place our confidence in our lives, in our smarts, in our talents, in our position? Do we really need to remind people of all of our accomplishments? What is rolling around in our hearts when we give people our credentials all the time? When we do this, we are at a deeper level performing for people, aren't we? Do people always need to recognize and value us, then respond? At home, do you have to have recognition of all your work? Do you have to have all the attaboys to feel that you're accepted and that your love tank is full? At work, are you more concerned that your boss sees your work and gives you the pat on the back? Are you more concerned that your coworkers see all that you do and how smart and clever you are? What's, what's going on in your hearts in those moments? Aren't we slowly and deceptively removing the desire to please God and replacing it with the desire to please ourselves? Who are we truly living for? Further, is it even possible to allow others to get the credit that we deserve? This is a hard one, isn't it? Can you live and work in the background and not get any credit or praise? When was the last time someone suggested the same idea that you did earlier, except they get to credit and you don't? I mean, that's where the rubber meets the road, right? How do we respond? Can we live in the background? Can, can we be forgotten if God is remembered most? Can God have the leading role in our life instead of us? Can, can we live our life without getting any thanks, without getting the recognition, without getting the pat on the back? Is it possible for you? Can God have the leading role? One Sunday morning, Charles Spurgeon was greeted by members of his congregation. One man said to him, Sir, that was the greatest sermon I have ever heard and that you've ever preached. Spurgeon turned to him and said, Yes, the devil told me that 10 minutes ago. We would do well to remember that all of our gifts All of our positions and power come ultimately from God and he will not share his glory with another. We need to boast only in God, friends. 
If this life has anything to gain at all, we should count it as lost as long as we know Jesus Christ. We boast in God and God alone because he is worthy, friends. And this is what we see in Joseph. And he wants to relay it over and over. This is his theme. God deserves the glory. Verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed them to Pharaoh, what he's about to do. In verse 28, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Joseph was confident in his God and humbly depended upon him. He didn't need to boast in himself. Even after all the tragic things that happened to him in his life, he points to God. And from start to finish, Joseph is God-centered. God gives the solution to his dreams through Joseph and God provides for Joseph and he removes him from the pit and he places him in second in command again. This is the third time you've been keeping track with Potiphar and the prison guard and now Pharaoh. God was the one that provided for Joseph every step of the way. It was not Joseph. It was his God. And the power, the power he gives him, look at verse 42. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it in Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. And thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath, Peniath. And he gave him a marriage, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharia priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph's a new man with a new position, with new power and new name. He's beginning an Egyptian name, Zaphonath Peniath. There's lots of confusion what that means. We're not really sure it's an Egyptian name. It's most definitely going in the opposite direction of his Hebrew heritage. It might seem, as we're looking at it, from the American mindset, that everything is going well for Joseph now. I mean, Joel Osteen has a fit. He just loves this, this chapter. But what I see is a new pit of temptation. Will he become just like the pagan Egyptians? He has the name. He has the power. He has the position. I, I wonder if these things weren't really a benefit for Joseph. Perhaps he didn't rejoice when this happened. Would you? Ah, see, that's the question he's asked this afternoon. Will Joseph become like the Egyptians? Will God be forgotten? See, it gets worse, not just the name and power. He, 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 he's given a pagan wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharia, priest. We know what her name means, the one belonging to the goddess Neith. Joseph is now... Egyptian nobility with a marriage. He, he is married into one of the most powerful families of all of Egypt. Perhaps this was Pharaoh's attempt to blend the religions. Because he has Joseph and his God and he has his God. So let's just, let's just bring them together and we'll have that, that powerhouse like the NBA is doing. We'll get two superstars and we'll just rule. And it never works, by the way. See, Joseph didn't have a choice in the matter either. This was another arrest for him. The wife came with the job. He has tremendous opportunities now, but with those great opportunities, he has 
incredible temptations. Perhaps this is the greatest danger, though, for us as believers. What do we do when we're given greater responsibility and power and position and money and fame? Do we eat it up? Do we revel in it? Do we want more and more? Finally, we've got all that we've dreamed of. I believe, I really believe that the greater temptation for American Christians isn't poverty or being unjustly wronged. No, the greater temptation is affluence. We begin to earn more and more money, and so now we can love the world more and more. And we begin to, to, to make hundreds of little decisions that begin to erode our trust in God. And one of the greatest challenges for us is being wealthy and influential, and remember, and then remembering that we're still called to be humble servants of Christ Jesus. Christian, you serve God, and you still are an alien in this world. We cannot allow the world to dictate how we live. We need the word to dictate. And so how will Joseph respond? Will he become just like the Egyptians? Well, we find out. Verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asiath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. In the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph was in Egypt, but he was not an Egyptian. God gives him two sons, and he proceeds to give them Hebrew names. He identifies with his people of the covenant by giving his sons Hebrew names. As a slave, he had no choice but to receive his name and his wife. But when his sons were born, he had a choice, and his loyalty was to God and his family. But what do the names mean? It's interesting. We get a glimpse into his heart. Both names affirm that God was doing something in the life of Joseph. God made him forget, and God made him fruitful. And we're convinced that, that we are doing things, whether good or bad, and that other people are doing things, whether for us or against us, but we so often forget that the overarching truth that God has the leading role in our lives, shaping us in particular ways according to his own purposes. And his two boys are no more an accident than the two dreams he had about his family or the two additional years he had in prison. These boys were the means that God was doing something in his life. And the same is for us. God is up to something in our lives right now, in this very moment. He is shaping things in every person, every situation for his sovereign and providential purposes. What about the names? Firstborn, it says that God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And in calling his son Manasseh, he actually assured the perpetual remembering of his declaration of forgetting. How can you constantly remember that you have forgotten something? That definitely gives us a different perspective. Perhaps you have serious life-shaping events that you simply can't forget. And, and, and the lie of forgive and forget isn't humanly possible. Whoever taught you that, they're wrong. It's destructive advice. You simply cannot wipe out the past from your memory banks by sheer willpower. And neither could Joseph. And what Joseph does by naming his son was reshape the significance of the past 
by putting it in the context of what God was doing in his life. His son would become a permanent testimony to God's power to redeem the past. He would never truly forget all that he experienced, but he would choose to remember it through the lens of God's presence with him in his pain and God's faithfulness in ultimately bringing him through that suffering into blessing. He could see the providence of God. How could he see it? By looking backwards. Puritan John Flavel said, the providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can be read only backwards. God gave grace to Joseph to put his past hardships and sufferings into a new redemptive context. And the marks of the wounds remain in his life. But those scars had been weaved beautifully into a new, beautiful pattern of God's grace. And he was determined not to forget it. And the same is for you, friends. I know. I spent the morning praying because I knew there's people here who've experienced serious trauma in your life. And you don't simply forget that experience of life-changing suffering. You can't. And I recognize those scars will mark you indelibly for the rest of your life. And you shouldn't feel less of a Christian because of it. I was reminded in my study that it's striking to remember that Jesus' resurrected and glorified body still bear the scars of his suffering. There were still nail prints in his hands and a wound in his side. And why didn't God the Father remove those wounds at the resurrection? It's because those scars speak of the painful sacrifice and are made beautiful by the fruit that they bear for God's redemptive purpose. Friends, God is bigger than your past. The parent or sibling or teacher who abused you does not define you, who you are today. The person who hurt you, disappointed, rejected, or criticized you repeatedly cannot make you something that Christ's blood is insufficient to cover. And what God does though, he takes those ugly, horrific wounds and he reshapes them into a beautiful part of the tapestry of purpose and blessing that he's weaving into your life. And he can overwhelm the painful memories of your past with the wonderful memory of his greater faithfulness and grace to you in the midst of all your pain 
and with the assurance that he will bring glorious good even out of the most horrific sins and suffering. And we see this in Joseph's life, even in the name of the second son, Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God doesn't always promise to deliver us out of the land of our affliction. Though that's what we really want and usually what we pray for. I'm positive that Joseph prayed this over and over in prison. Instead, God's purposes for Joseph to be fruitful took shape precisely in the land of his affliction in Egypt, where God used him to be a blessing to those around him, ultimately saving people from death. Often for us, Christian, God will use us in the land of our affliction, right in the middle of the pit, even in the middle of the suffering, right where we don't want to be so that others may see Christ. And if you're honest this morning, we don't want to be there. We don't want to stay in the land of affliction. We want to be that perfect China which sits comfortably in the cabinet, admired by others. We want to be locked away unable to be hurt and damaged, right? Paul has something to say about this to the Corinthian believers. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. As Christians, he's saying we are jars of clay. We are simple pots, clay pots, You know what clay pots are made out of? Clay. That's dirt. The stuff you dig up in your yard. You and I are dirt. And we're formed and made into something useful. But it's not pretty. You know, these clay pots in this time are used for normal uses in life. Perhaps even bedpans. Nice, right? But these pots, he says have something incredible inside of them. Verse seven, they have a treasure. And you'd think that if you have a treasure, you want to store it away safe. That's what we do with treasures, right? We we put our money in banks. We put our expensive cars in the garage. But God takes his treasure and puts it in us. Why? Have you ever thought about that? He does this so that when we break and when we crack, we show Christ. We show the treasure that was inside of us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Can any of you relate to this? 
God makes us clay pots for his use, for his service, and we will get chipped. We will get dented and cracked. God intends to break the pot to let the gospel out. We want to polish the pot. We want to hide it. And instead, we need to show the cracks so that God gets the glory. So that people can see God in us. So people can see what God has done in us. See, Paul was right. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Sometimes the aroma of something is not evident until it's been crushed and broken. And that happens with our lives. So how does this chapter apply to us? Third, our God's providence in us. On the surface of this story, it seems that Pharaoh was the one who was making Joseph. Everything that comes to Joseph in this chapter seems to come from Pharaoh's hand. His position, his power, his privilege, his wife, everything. He's made the servant of Pharaoh. But the irony is that from this standpoint of Genesis, after all that we've seen in these five chapters thus far, it's not Pharaoh's hand. It's God's invisible providential hand. For all that Pharaoh did, God brought Joseph to the recognition of Pharaoh, and God continued to give wisdom and success each step of the way. And in the end, Joseph isn't Pharaoh's man. He's God's man. In his providence, the sovereign God exalted the prisoner Joseph to the ruler of Egypt in order to save the world from famine. And years before, in the book of Genesis, God had promised Abraham, in you all the families of God shall be blessed. And we see this partially fulfilled in Joseph. We look at the end of this chapter, verse 56. So when the famine had spread over the, over the all land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. God blesses the world with food through Joseph. But the promise to Abraham finds even greater fulfillment in Abraham's long-distance relative, Jesus Christ. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, our sovereign God exalts his suffering servant to kingship. Joseph then and Jesus now in order to save his people. Joseph reminds us of Jesus. Joseph is his servant of the Most High, just as Jesus was. Joseph was God's prophet in bringing God's word to Pharaoh. So Jesus is God's prophet in bringing God's word to his people. But Jesus is greater than Joseph. Jesus is God's chief prophet, God's word from eternity. As Joseph was exalted the right hand of Pharaoh, so Jesus is exalted the right hand of God to rule the nations as the king of kings and lord of lords. And as we're commanded to bow before Joseph as they were in verse 43, so at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And with Joseph, with bread that saved many people from death, so Jesus, the bread of life, saves many people from eternal death. 
Friends, this morning we, we've seen, we, we, we walk through, we look backwards and see the providential hand of God. You can't help but see it. But you've experienced God's providence this morning. He brought you here. He woke you up. He kept your heart beating all night. And he provided for you every step of the way. And whether you're regular here or today is your first week, God provided you with a church family to worship with and his word for you. But not only that, God provided Jesus for you. And he died to purchase you. He died to take your sins because you couldn't bear them on your own. You could not stand before a holy God in your sins. We needed a substitute. And I want to encourage you, friends, to trust in Jesus this morning. He is the living bread that came from heaven for you. If you eat this bread, you will live forever. And life without Jesus isn't life at all. It's prolonged death. And I pray that you would find your life in Christ today and leave this place with renewed hope that your life is actually going somewhere good for God's glory, by God's marvelous grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the challenge of your word and that your spirit makes your word effective in our hearts. We thank you that we could gather together this morning as a family. And it's only possible because of Jesus Christ, of what he's done for us in the cross. And I pray, God, that we be reminded of that and encouraged in that this week. And God, I pray for those that are here this morning that even in a message like this or recounting all of the deep issues and scars that they've faced in their lives, may they run to you. May they find their hope and their peace in you and you alone. Help us as a church family to love and care for them, to pray for them, to encourage them. And God, I do pray for those that are seated here that do not know you. They don't have a relationship with you. God, I boldly ask that you would save them, that you would regenerate them, that you would give them faith to believe. They would repent from their sins of trusting themselves and turn to you to trust in you alone. Thank you for the privilege that we have to know you and to proclaim your gospel with all that we come in contact with. And may we do that as we leave this place. For we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.